This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce, and I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code SLEEPY to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com slash SLEEPY. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have a really nice, uh, spacey, dreamy story for you tonight. And uh, before we get to our bedtime reading, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, where you can go and pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of Sleepy. So, this week's wonderful new patrons, Katie Lacer, Ren Castanon, Erica Edelman, and Carmen Chandler. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. It's really humbling, and it truly, truly means a lot. So thank you. And for anyone who doesn't know, 
um, these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com where you can go and support the creators of the work that you like directly. So if you like Sleepy, uh, maybe it's become part of your nightly routine, then uh, go to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donate even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And at $2 a month, uh, like I said, you get an ad-free version of the show. And at $5 a month, you get access to our poetry feed with over 50 episodes you haven't heard before. And uh, no matter how much you donate, even if it's a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight, um, I really, really enjoyed reading this story. It's uh, kind of thematically a nice come down from spooky October. We told more kind of uh, creepy stories. This is um, less outwardly spooky and more just kind of ethereal and dreamy and mysterious, which I think feels right for November. But it's uh, truly lovely writing. It's wonderful to read out loud. And uh, I think you're really going to like falling asleep to this one. It's a really great book. Written in uh, 1877, I believe. And it is called The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. And uh, also, before we get to the bedtime reading, uh, just so you know, um, Sleepy is now on TikTok, which is not something I ever thought I would do. Um, But... Turns out a lot of people uh, have asked for shorter versions of the show to uh, listen to during the day just to kind of relax and have a moment of zen and meditate. Uh, so I am starting to make videos that are anywhere from one minute to ten minutes long. Uh, just little, uh, little readings, poetry and Greek myths and Grimm's fairy tales and all kinds of stuff. So, if you'd like to go find Sleepy on TikTok, you can do that by looking up Sleepy Otis. Uh, put a link for that in the description of the show as well. But, without further ado, tonight's bedtime reading The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you.
Chapter 1 The Finding of the Manuscript Right away in the west of Ireland lies a tiny hamlet called Creighton. It is situated alone at the base of a low hill. Far around, there spreads a waste of bleak and totally inhospitable country, where here and there, at great intervals, one may come upon the ruins of some long, desolate cottage, unthatched and stark. The whole land is bare and unpeopled, the very earth scarcely covering the rock that lies beneath it, and with which the country abounds in places rising out of the soil in wave-shaped ridges. Yet in spite of its desolation, my friend Tonneson and I had elected to spend our vacation there. He had stumbled on the place by mere chance a year previously, during the course of a long walking tour, and discovered the possibilities for the angler in a small and unnamed river that runs past the outskirts of the little village. I have said that the river is without name. I may add that no map that I have hitherto consulted has shown either village or stream. They seem to have entirely escaped observation. Indeed, they might never exist for all that the average guide tells one. Possibly, this can partly be accounted for by the fact that the nearest railway station, Ardraham, is some 40 miles distant. It was early one warm evening when my friend and I arrived in Creighton. We had reached Ardrahan the previous night, sleeping there in rooms hired at the village post office and leaving in good time on the following morning, clinging insecurely to one of the typical jaunting cars. It had taken us all day to accomplish our journey over some of the roughest tracks imaginable with the result that we were thoroughly tired and somewhat bad temper. However, the tent had to be erected and our goods stowed away before we could think of our food or rest. And so we set to work, with the aid of our driver, and soon had the tent up upon a small patch of ground just outside the little village and quite near to the river. Then, Having stored all of our belongings, we dismissed the driver, as he had to make his way back as speedily as possible, and told him to come across to us at the end of a fortnight. We had brought sufficient provisions to last us for that space of time, and water we could get from the stream. Fuel we did not need, as we had included a small oil stove among our outfit and the weather was fine and warm. It was Tonneson's idea to camp out instead of getting lodgings in one of the cottages. As he put it, there was no joke in sleeping in a room with a numerous family of healthy Irish in one corner and the pigsty in the other, while overhead a ragged colony of roosting fowls distributed their blessings impartially, and the whole place so full of peat smoke that it made a fellow sneeze its head off just to put it inside the doorway. Tonneson had got the stove lit now and was busy cutting slices of bacon into the frying pan. 
so I took the kettle and walked down to the river for water. On the way, I had to pass close to a little group of the village people who eyed me curiously, but not in any unfriendly manner, though none of them ventured a word. As I returned with my kettle filled, I went up to them, and after a friendly nod, to which they replied in like manner, I asked them casually about the fishing. But instead of answering, they just shook their heads silently and stared at me. I repeated the question, addressing more particularly a great gaunt fellow at my elbow. Yet again I received no answer. Then the man turned to a comrade and said something rapidly in a language that I did not understand. And at once the whole crowd of them fell to jabbering in what, after a few moments, I guessed to be pure Irish. At the same time, they cast many glances in my direction. For a minute, perhaps, they spoke among themselves thus, and the man I had addressed faced round at me and said something. By the expression of his face, I guessed that he, in turn, was questioning me. But now I had to shake my head and indicate that I did not comprehend what it was they wanted to know. And so we stood, looking at one another, until I heard Tonneson calling to me to hurry up with the kettle. Then, with a smile and a nod, I left them, and all in the little crowd smiled and nodded in return though their faces still betrayed their puzzlement. It was evident, I reflected as I went toward the tent, that the inhabitants of these few huts in the wilderness did not know a word of English. And when I told Tonneson, he remarked that he was aware of the fact, and more, that it was not at all uncommon in the part of the country where the people often lived and died in their isolated hamlets without ever coming in contact with the outside world. I wish we had got the driver to interpret for us before he left, I remarked, as we sat down to our meal. It seems so strange for the people of this place not even to know what we've come for. Tonneson grunted in assent, and thereafter was silent for a while. Later, having satisfied our appetite somewhat, we began to talk, laying our plans for the morrow. Then, after a smoke, we closed the flap of the tent and prepared to turn in. I suppose there's no chance of these fellows outside taking anything, I asked, as we rolled ourselves in our blankets. Tonneson said that he did not think so at least while we were about, and as he went on to explain, he could lock up everything except the tent and the big chest that we had brought to hold our provision. I agreed to this, and soon we were both asleep. Next morning, early, we rose and went for a swim in the river, after which we dressed and had breakfast and we roused out our fishing tackle and overhauled it, by which time 
our breakfast having settled somewhat, we made all secure within the tent and strode off in the direction my friend had explored on his previous visit. During the day, we fished happily, working steadily upstream, and by evening, we had one of the prettiest creels of fish that I had seen for a long while. Returning to the village, we made a good feed off our day's spoil, after which, having selected a few of the finer fish for our breakfast, we presented the remainder to the group of villagers who had assembled at a respectful distance to watch our doings. They seemed wonderfully grateful and heaped mountains of what I presumed to be Irish blessings upon our heads. Thus we spent several days having splendid spore and first-rate appetites to do justice upon our prey. We were pleased to find how friendly the villagers were inclined to be and that there was no evidence of their having ventured to meddle with our belongings during our absences. It was on Tuesday that we arrived in Creighton, and it would be on the Sunday following that we made a great discovery. Hitherto we had always gone upstream. On that day, however, we laid aside our rods, and taking some provisions, set off for a long ramble in the opposite direction. The day was warm, and we trudged along leisurely enough stopping about midday to eat our lunch upon a great flat rock near the river bank. Afterward, we sat and smoked a while, resuming our walk only when we had tired of inaction. For perhaps another hour, we wandered inward, chatting quietly and comfortably on this and that matter, and on several occasions stopping while my companion who is something of an artist, made rough sketches of striking bits of the wild scenery. And then, without any warning whatsoever, the river we followed so confidently came to an abrupt end, vanishing into the earth. Good Lord, I said, whoever would have thought of this? And I stared in amazement. Then I turned to Tonneson. He was looking, with a blank expression upon his face, at the place where the river disappeared. In a moment he spoke. Let us go on a bit. It may reappear again. Anyhow, it is worth investigating. I agreed, and we went forward once more, though rather aimlessly for we were not at all certain in which direction to prosecute our search. For perhaps a mile we moved forward. Then Tonneson, who had been gazing about curiously, stopped and shaded his eyes. See, he said, after a moment, isn't that mist or something over there to the right, away in a line with that great piece of rock? And he indicated with his hand. I stared, and after a minute, seemed to see something, but could not be certain, and said so. Anyway, my friend replied, 
We'll just go across and have a glance. Then he started off in the direction he had suggested, I following. Presently we came among bushes, and after a time, out upon the top of the high, boulder-strewn bank, from which we looked down into the wilderness of bushes and trees. Seems as though we had come upon an oasis in this desert of stone, muttered Tonneson, as he gazed interestedly. Then he was silent, his eyes fixed, and I looked also. For up from somewhere about the center of the wooded lowland, there rose high into the quiet air a great column of haze-like spray, upon which the sun shone, causing innumerable rainbows. How beautiful, I exclaimed. Yes, answered Tonneson thoughtfully. There must be a waterfall or something over there. Perhaps it's our river come to light again. Let's go and see. Down the sloping bank we made our way and entered among the trees and shrubberies. The bushes were matted and the trees overhung us so that the place was disagreeably gloomy though not dark enough to hide from me the fact that many of the trees were fruit trees, and that here and there one could trace indistinctly signs of long-departed cultivation. Thus it came to me that we were making our way through the riot of a great and ancient garden. I said as much to Tonneson, and he agreed that there certainly seemed reasonable grounds for my belief. What a wild place it was, so dismal and somber. Somehow, as we went forward, a sense of silent loneliness and desertion of the old garden grew upon me, and I felt shivery. One could imagine things lurking among the tangled bushes, while in the very air of the place there seemed something uncanny. I think Tonson was conscious of this also though he said nothing. Suddenly we came to a hall. Through the trees there had grown upon our ears a distant sound. Tonson bent forward, listening. I could hear it more plainly now. It was continuous and harsh, a sort of droning roar seeming to come from far away. I experienced a queer, indescribable little feeling of nervousness. What sort of place was it into which we had got? I looked at my companion to see what he thought of the matter and noted that there was only puzzlement in his face. And then, as I watched his features, an expression of comprehension crept over them and he nodded his head. That's a waterfall, he exclaimed with conviction. I know the sound now. And he began to push vigorously through the bushes in the direction of the noise. As we went forward, the sound became plainer continually, showing that we were heading straight toward it. Steadily, 
The roaring grew louder and nearer until it appeared, as I remarked to Tonneson, almost to come from under our feet. And still, we were surrounded by the trees and shrubs. Take care, Tonneson called to me. Look where you're going. And then, suddenly, we came out from among the trees, onto a great open space, where, not six paces in front of us, yawned the mouth of a tremendous chasm, from the depths of which the noise appeared to rise, along with the continuous mist-like spray that we had witnessed from the top of the distant bank. For quite a minute we stood in silence, staring in bewilderment at the sight. Then my friend went forward cautiously to the edge of the abyss. I followed, and together we looked down through a boil of spray at a monster cataract of frothing water that burst, spouting from the side of the chasm nearly a hundred feet below. Good Lord, said Tonneson. I was silent and rather awed. The sight was so unexpectedly grand and eerie, though this latter quality came more upon me later. Presently, I looked up and across to the further side of the chasm. There, I saw something towering up among the spray. It looked like a fragment of a great ruin, and I touched Tonneson on the shoulder. He glanced round with a star, and I pointed to the thing. His gaze followed my finger and his eyes lighted up with a sudden flash of excitement as the object came within his field of view. Come along, he shouted above the uproar. We'll have a look at it. There's something queer about this place. I feel it in my bones and he started off, round the edge of the crater-like abyss. As we neared this new thing, I saw that I had not been mistaken in my first impression. It was undoubtedly a portion of some ruined building, yet now I made out that it was not built upon the edge of a chasm itself, as I had at first supposed but perched almost at the extreme end of a huge spur of rock that jutted out some fifty or sixty feet over the abyss. In fact, the jagged mass of ruin was literally suspended in midair. Arriving opposite it, we walked out on the projecting arm of rock, and I must confess to having felt an intolerable sense of terror as I looked down from that dizzy perch into the unknown depths below us, into the deeps from which there arose ever the thunder of the falling water and the shroud of rising spray. Reaching the ruin, we clambered round it cautiously, and on the further side came upon a mass of fallen stones and rubble. The ruin itself seemed to me, as I proceeded now to examine it minutely, to be a portion of the outer wall of some prodigious structure. It was so thick and substantially built, 
Yet what was it doing in such a position? I could by no means conjecture. Where was the rest of the house? Or castle? Or whatever there had been? I went back to the outer side of the wall, and thence to the edge of the chasm, leaving Tonneson rooted systematically among the heap of stones and rubbish on the outer side. Then I commenced to examine the surface of the ground, near the edge of the abyss, to see whether there were not left other remnants of the building to which the fragment of ruin evidently belonged. But though I scrutinized the earth, with the greatest care, I could see no signs of anything to show that there had ever been a building erected on the spot, and I grew more puzzled than ever. Then I heard a cry from Tonneson. He was shouting my name excitedly, and without delay, I hurried along the rocky promontory to the ruin. I wondered whether he had hurt himself. And then the thought came that perhaps he had found something. I reached the crumbled wall and climbed down. There I found Tonneson standing within a small excavation that he had made among the debris. He was brushing the dirt from something that looked like a book, much crumpled and dilapidated, and opening his mouth every second or two to bellow my name. As soon as he saw that I had come, he handed his prize to me, telling me to put it into my satchel so as to protect it from the damp while he continued his explorations. This I did, first, however, running the pages through my fingers and noting that they were closely filled with neat, old-fashioned writing which was quite legible save in one portion, where many of the pages were almost destroyed, being muddled and crumpled as though the book had been doubled back at that part. This, I found out from Tonneson, was actually as he had discovered it, and the damage was due, probably, to the fall of masonry upon the open part. Curiously enough, the book was fairly dry, which I attributed to its having been so securely buried among the ruins. Having put the volume away safely, I turned to and gave Tonneson a hand with his self-imposed task of excavating. Yeah, though we put in over an hour's hard work, turning over the whole of the unheaped stones and rubbish, we came upon nothing more than some fragments of broken wood which we were able to observe was in the form of an almost perfect circle, save for where the ruin-crowned spur of rock jutted out, spoiling its symmetry. The abyss was, as Tonneson put it, like nothing so much as a gigantic well or pit going sheer down into the bowels of the earth. For some time longer, we continued to stare about us, then, noticing that there was a clear space away to the north of the chasm, we bent our steps in that direction. Here, 
distant from the mouth of the mighty pit by some hundreds of yards, we came upon a great lake of silent water. Silent, that is, save in one place, where there was a continuous bubbling and gurgling. Now, being away from the noise of the spouting cataract, we were able to hear one another speak without having to shout at the top of our voices. And I asked Tonneson what he thought of the place. I told him that I didn't like it, and that the sooner we were out of it, the better I should be pleased. He nodded in reply, and glanced at the woods behind furtively. I asked him if he had seen or heard anything. He made no answer, but stood silent, as though listening, but I kept quiet also. Suddenly he spoke. Hark, he said, sharply. I looked at him, and then away among the trees and bushes, holding my breath involuntarily. A minute came and went in strained silence, yet I could hear nothing, and I turned to Tonneson to say as much. But then, even as I opened my lips to speak, there came a strange wailing noise out of the wood on our left. It appeared to float through the trees, and there was a rustle of stirring leaves, and then silence. All at once, Tonneson spoke and put his hand on my shoulder. Let us get out of here, he said, and began to move slowly toward where the surrounding trees and bushes seemed thinnest. As I followed him, it came to me suddenly that the sun was low, and that there was a raw sense of chilliness in the air. Tonisid said nothing further, but kept on steadily. We were among the trees now, and I glanced around nervously, but saw nothing, save the quiet branches and trunks of the tangled bushes. Onward we went, and no sound broke the silence, except the occasional snapping of a twig under our feet as we moved forward. Yet in spite of the quietness, I had a horrible feeling that we were not alone, and I kept so close to Tonneson that twice I kicked his heels clumsily, though he said nothing. A minute, and then another, and we reached the confines of the wood coming out at last upon the bare rockiness of the countryside. Only then was I able to shake off the haunting dread that had followed me among the trees. Once, as we moved away, there seemed to come again a distant sound of wailing, and I said to myself that it was the wind, yet the evening was breathless. Presently, Tonneson began to talk. Look you, he said with decision. I would not spend the night in that place for all the wealth that the world holds. There is something unholy, diabolical about it. It came to me all in a moment, just after you spoke. It seemed to me that the woods were full of vile things, you know, 
Yes, I answered, and looked back toward the place, but it was hidden from us by a rise in the ground. There's the book, I said, and put my hand into the satchel. You've got it safely, he questioned with a sudden access of anxiety. Yes, I reply. Perhaps, he continued, we shall learn something from it when we get back to the tent. We had better hurry, too. We're a long way off still, and I don't fancy now being caught out here in the dark. It was two hours later when we reached the tent, and without delay we set to work to prepare a meal, for we had eaten nothing since our lunch at midday. Supper over, we cleared the things out of the way and lit our pipes. Then Tonneson asked me to get the manuscript out of my satchel. This I did, and then, as we could not both read from it at the same time, he suggested that I should read the thing out loud. And mind, he cautioned, knowing my propensities, don't go skipping half the book. Yeah, had he but known what it contained, he would have realized how needless such advice was, for once at least. And there, seated in the opening of our little tent, I began the strange tale of the house on the borderland, for such was its title. This is told in the following pages. Chapter 2 The Plain of Silence I am an old man. I live here in this ancient house surrounded by huge, unkept gardens. The peasantry, who inhabit the wilderness beyond, say that I am mad. That is because I will have nothing to do with them. I live here alone with my old sister who is also my housekeeper. We keep no servants. I hate them. I have one friend, a dog. Yes, I would sooner have old Pepper than the rest of creation together. He, at least, understands me and has sense enough to leave me alone when I am in my dark moods. I have decided to start a kind of diary it may enable me to record some of the thoughts and feelings that I cannot express to anyone. But beyond this, I am anxious to make some record of the strange things that I have heard and seen during many years of loneliness in this weird old building. For a couple of centuries, this house has had a reputation, a bad one, and until I bought it, for more than 80 years, no one had lived there. Consequently, I got the old place at a ridiculously low figure. I'm not superstitious, but I have ceased to deny that things happen in this old house. Things that I cannot explain. And therefore, I must needs ease my mind by writing down an account of them to the best of my ability. Though, should this, my diary, 
never be read when I am gone. The readers will but shake their heads and be the more convinced that I was mad. This house, how ancient it is, though its age strikes one less, perhaps, than the quaintness of its structure, which is curious and fantastic to the last degree. Little curved towers and pinnacles with outlines suggestive of leaping flames predominate, while the body of the building is in the form of a circle. I have heard that there is an old story, told amongst the country people, to the effect that the devil built the place. However, that is as may be. True or not, I neither know nor care, save as it may have helped to cheapen it, ere I came. I must have been here some ten years before I saw sufficient to warrant any belief in these stories current in the neighborhood about this house. It is true that I had on at least a dozen occasions seen vaguely things that puzzled me and perhaps had felt more than I had seen. Then, as the years passed, bringing age upon me, I became often aware of something unseen yet unmistakably present in the empty rooms and corridors. Still, it was as I have said in many years before I saw any real manifestations of the so-called supernatural. It was not Halloween. If I were telling a story for amusement's sake, I should probably place it on that night of nights. But this is a true record of my own experiences, and I would not put pen to paper to amuse anyone. No. It was after midnight on the morning of the 21st of January. I was sitting, reading, as is often my custom, in my study. Pepper lay sleeping near my chair. Without warning, the flames of the two candles went low and then shone with a ghastly green effulgence. I looked up quickly. And as I did, so I saw the light sink into a dull, ruddy tint, so that the room glowed with a strange, heavy, crimson twilight that gave the shadows behind the chairs and tables a double depth of blackness. And wherever the light struck, it was as though luminous blood had been splashed over the room. Down on the floor, I heard a faint, frightened whimper, and something pressed itself in between my two feet. It was Pepper, cowering under my dressing gown. Pepper, usually brave as a lion. It was this movement of the dogs, I think, that gave me the first twinge of real fear. I had been considerably startled when the lights burnt first green and then red, but had been momentarily under the impression that the change was due to some influx of noxious gas into the room. Now, however, I saw that it was not so, for the candles burned with a steady flame, 
and showed no signs of going out. As would have been the case had the change been due to fumes in the atmosphere. I did not move. I felt distinctly frightened, but could think of nothing better to do than wait. For perhaps a minute, I kept my glance about the room nervously. Then I noticed that the lights had commenced to sink very slowly, until presently they showed minute specks of red fire, like the gleamings of rubies in the darkness. Still, I sat watching, while a sort of dreamy indifference seemed to steal over me, banishing altogether the fear that had begun to grip me. Away in the far end of the huge old-fashioned room, I became conscious of a faint glow. Steadily it grew, filling the room with gleams of quivering green light. Then they sank quickly and changed, even as the candle flames had done, into a deep, somber crimson that strengthened and lit up the room with a flood of awful glory. The light came from the end wall and grew ever brighter until its intolerable glare caused my eyes acute pain. Involuntarily, I closed them. It may have been a few seconds before I was able to open them. The first thing I noticed was that the light had decreased greatly so that it no longer tried my eyes. Then, as it grew still duller, I was aware all at once that instead of looking at the redness, I was staring through it and through the wall beyond. Gradually, as I became more accustomed to the idea, I realized that I was looking out into a vast plain, lit with the same gloomy twilight that pervaded the room. The immensity of this plain scarcely can be conceived. In no part could I perceive its confines. It seemed to broaden and spread out, so that the eye failed to perceive any limitations. The details of the nearer portions began to grow clear. Then, in a moment almost, the light died away, and the vision if vision it were, faded and was gone. Suddenly I became conscious that I was no longer in the chair. Instead I seemed to be hovering above it and looking down at a dim something, huddled and silent. In a little while, a cold blast struck me, but I was outside in the night floating like a bubble up through the darkness. As I moved, an icy coldness seemed to enfold me so that I shivered. After a time, I looked to right and left and saw the intolerable blackness of the night, pierced by the remote gleams of fire. Onward, outward, I drove. Once I glanced behind 
and saw the earth, a small crescent of blue light receding away to my left. Further off, the sun, a splash of white flame, burned vividly against the dark. An indefinite period passed. Then, for the last time, I saw the earth, an endearing globule of radiant blue, swimming in an eternity of ether. And there, I, a fragile flake of soul dust, flickered silently across the void from the distant blue into the expanse of the unknown. A gray while seemed to pass over me, and now I could nowhere see anything. I had passed beyond the fixed stars and plunged into the huge blackness that awaits beyond. All this time, I had experienced little, save a sense of lightness and cold discomfort. Now, however, the atrocious darkness seemed to creep into my soul, and I became filled with fear and despair. What was going to become of me? Where was I going? Even as the thoughts were formed, there grew against the impalpable blackness that wrapped me a faint tinge of blood. It seemed extraordinarily remote and mist-like. Yet, at once, the feeling of oppression was lighted, and I no longer despaired. Slowly, the distant redness became plainer and larger, until, as I grew nearer, it spread out into a great somber glare, dull and tremendous. Still, I fled forward, and presently, I'd come so close that it seemed to stretch beneath me like a great ocean of somber red. I could see little, save that it appeared to spread out interminably in all directions. In a further space, I found that I was descending upon it, and soon I sank into a great sea of sullen, red-hued clouds. Slowly, I emerged from these, and there below me, I saw the stupendous plain that I had seen from my room in this house that stands upon the borders of the silences. Presently, I landed and stood, surrounded by a great waste of loneliness. The place was lit with a gloomy twilight that gave an impression of indescribable desolation. Afar to my right, within the sky, there burnt a gigantic ring of dull red fire, on the outer edge of which were projected huge writhing flames darted and jagged. The interior of this ring was black, black as the gloom of the outer night. I comprehended, at once, that it was from this extraordinary sun that the place derived its doleful light. From that strange source of light, I glanced down again to my surroundings. Everywhere I looked, 
I saw nothing but the same flat weariness of interminable plain. Nowhere could I descry any signs of life, not even the ruins of some ancient habitation. Gradually, I found that I was being borne forward, floating across the flat waste. For what seemed an eternity, I moved forward. I was unaware of any great sense of impatience, though some curiosity and a vast wonder were with me continually. Always I saw around me the breadth of that enormous plain, and always I searched for some new thing to break its monotony. But there was no change, only loneliness, silence, and desert. Presently, in a half-conscious manner, I noticed there was a faint mistiness, ruddy in hue, lying over its surface. Still, when I looked more intently, I was unable to say that it was really mist, for it appeared to blend with the plain, giving it a peculiar unrealness and conveying to the senses the idea of unsubstantiality. Gradually, I began to weary with the sameness of the thing. Yet, it was a great time before I perceived any signs of the place toward which I was being conveyed. At first, I saw it far ahead, like a long hillcock on the surface of the plain. Then, as I drew nearer, I perceived that I had been mistaken. For instead of a low hill, I made out now a chain of gray mountains whose distant peaks towered up into the red gloom until they were almost lost to sight. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.